0: Thank you. before we start this episode i'd like to thank our new patreon members from the month of september you guys my patreon support means the world to me just helps me keep the podcast going so let me thank our new convert levels and just a reminder guys if you are a convert you get to introduce the podcast so message me if you need help doing that but first let me thank the nature versus narcissism podcast for becoming a convert as well as eleanor l for becoming a convert thank you guys and now on to the episode Welcome back to the Cult of Domesticity. This week, it's just me. It's been crazy with working many hours at the brewery and trying to schedule recordings. So we have a couple weeks of just me. And then I have some fun collabs and things planned for this spooky season. So get excited. I know I'm excited. And if my voice sounds bad, I'm sorry. Allergies. Allergies. <laughs> Ohio just dropped into being cold. I'm not a fan. I don't like being cold, but I hope you're all doing well in the spooky season with the pandemic and everything. Remember, mask up, wash your hands. You know, we can all just bathe in some antibacterial soap like we're gonna go have surgery it's fine but today we're gonna discuss i I mean technically he's not a serial killer but kind of a serial killer gary michael hendrick so sit back get i guess get your coffee get your tea get your strong drink and let's get started so hendrick was born November twenty second, nineteen forty-three, to his parents Michael and Ellen, and was raised in East Lake, Ohio. So that's on the east side of Cleveland. Family there. It's not why I picked this guy, but <laughs> it was a coincidence. He also had a younger brother, Terry, and his parents actually divorced three years later in nineteen forty six. They were raised by the children were raised by their mother for four years and then placed into the care of his father, who remarried, which you know, not that all uncommon. Hendrick would claim that he was emotionally abused by his father. He, you know, he suffered a lifetime problem with bedwetting, which is on the McDonald's triad, which is very contentious now. But, you know, people would say, eh, could be a sign of a serial killer. He also claimed that his father would humiliate him by forcing him to hang the stain sheets from his bedroom window to show off that he was still bedwetting. Which is just rude either way. Like, even if it was just to dry them out, like, put them in the backyard. Don't do that. Again, it's the 40s, so I guess most males were raised with the, let's rub some dirt in it, and that's how we raise our children, our sons. They don't cry. We rub some dirt in it, and it's fine. At the end of this, his father denied any abuse of his son. Again, it might just be differences in parenting styles. I'm not saying it's right. I very much think if that happened, it was wrong. But maybe his dad, as most parents do get fed up when your kid keeps wetting the bed and is like, wake up in the morning, God, I have to deal with this again. And he thought maybe doing it once or twice wouldn't scar him, obviously. It did, but it's a he said, he said situation. At school, he Hendrik really didn't interact with other students, didn't make eye contact, which is weird, I mean- Kids aren't nice always, but that's weird. Yeah. a nice uh, new female student asked, quote, did you get the homework done, Gary? End quote. And he yelled at her and told her, quote, she was not worthy enough, end quote, to talk to him. So maybe it's not him being weird, maybe it's him being pretentious. Who's to say? Additionally, he was teased about his oddly shaped head, which both Gary and his brother claimed was a result of him falling out of a tree. So if you're keeping up with the McDonald's triad, tick sheet. That's two out of three. <laughs> he actually did very well at school and they tested him to have an IQ of 148 his dad encouraged him to enroll in it's no longer in existence the Staunton Military Academy in Staunton Virginia so at 14 little Gary Hendrick you know packed up his stuff and left for two years leaving before graduation he went to another public high school dropped out and then joined the army at 17 which I mean it seems like another kind of stereotypical thing with some killers is they go into the military. Not all military people are killers. I've just noticed a pattern. They don't do well in school and sometimes the army straightens people out or the military straightens people out and sometimes it doesn't. It just teaches them bad habits. So he was only in the army for 13 months. I don't know if that's typical. Most of my friends in the military have been in there for years now. So who's to say? Who's to say? After basic training, his drill sergeant actually graded him as excellent. So, you know, he's smart and he's proficient in army stuff. You know, he's fit. He can shoot a gun. I don't know what else goes on in basic training, but he struggled after basic when he applied for several specialist positions because, you know, you don't walk up into the army and get whatever job you want. He wanted to be in the military place as well, but was rejected. So they sent him to San Antonio, Texas to be trained as a medic and receive do the medical training. And he actually did pretty well. He's then transferred all the way over to the 46th Army Surgical Hospital in Lundstuhl, West Germany. So, like, he's not doing bad in the Army. You think it's straightening him out, doing pretty well. He actually earns his GED, so he does, you know finally graduate high school. But in August 1962, Hendrick begins complaining of severe headaches, dizziness, blurred vision, and nausea. So not great. That's pretty concerning. And he gets diagnosed with gastroenteritis and the hospital neurologist also noted that he displayed symptoms of mental illness and so he gets prescribed oh god i don't not good at this triflu for it so this doctor was like "Ah, it's this is interesting so, we have him with gastroenteritis, completely treatable, stomach issues, you know. And the more concerning thing for us, because we know this isn't a good story, mental illness. So, a couple months later, in October, the same year, Gary gets transferred to a hot military hospital in Philadelphia. And he's diagnosed with a schizoid personality disorder and then receives an honorable discharge from the military. So, you know, the military is like, yeah, probably not best that you're here. You need to get treatment. Da Again, it's a 60s, so I'm guessing it was just the policy was no crazies in the military, but I'm sure it was phrased more eloquently, eloquently than that, but that's what I'm... <laughs> that tends to be a sentiment throughout. You know, Hendrick kind of goes, you know what, I have this training. I'm gonna become a licensed practical nurse So he enrolls at the University of Philadelphia, doesn't make it very far, drops out after one semester, but he does work as a psychiatric nurse at the VA hospital in Coatesville and then gets fired for poor attendance and rude behavior towards patients. And remember, like, we don't know how he's treating his schizoid personality disorder at this time, so... It could be he's not taking his meds or he just doesn't care. There's a lot of questions going in here. We see from August 1962 until he gets arrested in March 1987, he goes in and out of psychiatric hospitals and ultimately attempts suicide at least 13 times. So it's very actually tragic to show that he's not getting the mental health support that he needs and maybe these crimes could have been prevented. If he got better mental health support, all of that. Well, in 1970, his absentee mother, well, his mother who, who gave him over to his father, which made sense if she was a single mother, the stigma, you know, can't earn as much funds, actually completed suicide by drinking mercury chloride because she had been diagnosed with bone cancer and was suffering the effects of alcoholism so this is the 70s think of how far we've come in cancer treatment and since 2000 imagine having bone cancer what a, like from what i've heard p- most kind of painful because it hurts to move or do anything and you're also suffering from alcoholism it's she had to have been in so much pain i don't like i mean i can i just couldn't imagine to then Take. It's basically mercury chloride and it's normally found as antiseptic or disinfectant. So strangely topical for this be- time, but basically she drank disinfectant to end her life, which is extremely toxic and probably very painful um, on top of this. So you have in the 70s, Hendrix's mother dies by completing suicide who while she had cancer. And was suffering from her body shutting down from alcohol abuse. His brother, Terry, also is spending time in mental institutions and is attempting suicide multiple times so it's mental health issues seems to be a family issue and it's a little psa if your family has mental health issues or medical issues please tell people it's just helpful so that way kids don't think it's weird or they can answer their doctors correctly when they ask questions just good idea this is where it gets kind of interesting for me and kind of why i picked this in october 1971 hendrick incorporated a church which he called the United Church of the Ministers of God initially only had five members and it resulted in Because that year he went to California and he had a revelation that he should start his own church. I mean, I'm not going to judge, but it always, whenever people start their own churches, it always reminds me of the John Oliver last week, tonight segment, well, segments that he did on how easy it is to start a church. You know, we don't think about it and you get great tax benefits. Seriously, if you haven't watched that, go look it up on YouTube. Like, I'll wait. It's. It's a great time. It's a great time in that it's terrifying to think of how easy it is to get tax credits for that. But back to Hendrick. He returns to Philly and he registers it and he starts calling himself Bishop Hendrick. Because you know, why start off as a minister when you can be a bishop? You get a fun hat. You get to do fun moves on the chessboard. He's just out here for a good time. So of those five members. It includes his brother, Terry, and his mentally disabled girlfriend. He opens up a Merrill Lynch account in the church's name in 1975. So, you know, he's trying to be financially responsible. I'm gonna go, I I mean, go big or go home. He takes, in the next 12 years, really parlaying $1,500 in investments to $545,000. Damn, son. And I mean, it was just because he was Like he said, he was very smart and he was really interested in finance. But damn, son. On top of it, he was in and out of mental hospitals or, as he said, ministering to his parishioners, which there aren't that many. But by 1986, it was actually a healthy, thriving church and a very wealthy church, which blows my mind. But hey, I haven't watched clips of the guy speaking. He might have been very charismatic. He... I mean, he looks a little I'm not going to his prison like mugshot and stuff looks pretty crazy, but there's some pictures I could see like like a hipster, a hipster minister, you know. He does have the dead eyes of a serial like a of a disturbed person, but you never know. Those are pictures. It he could have been different. He used a marriage service, a matrimonial service to meet his future wife. So he had his initial girlfriend, and he then decides he wants to use a service, so they spend two years mailing letters back and forth. Guys, romance isn't dead. Before proposing to her. Betsy did so, arrived from the Philippines. So yes, he did get a mail-order bride. Nothing. I mean, honey gotta get out of bad situation somehow. Unfortunately, it's not gonna be getting to a better situation. So they- she arrives in September 1985, marries- hendrick in maryland interesting not pennsylvania in october couldn't find when she exactly came but i mean it's been at least some time we got married the same year yeah the marriage didn't last because she found him in bed with three other women throughout the course of their short marriage and he liked to make her watch while he had sex with other women so she she was like i'm not a fan of it she also accused him of repeatedly raping her and we're in the period now where she accused him of repeatedly raping and assaulting her. You have to remember, at this point, marital rape was still pretty contentious in 1978. Originally, it was... You had to be separated, not living together. And... (laughs) They were obviously living together. But in 1978, Oregon v. Rideout basically changed the cohabitation. And, you know, marital rape finally was a crime in all 50 states in 1993. I was born then. That's really fucking messed up. So, you know, it's, I'm, it, yeah, it's a lot to think about and dark. So luckily it did so actually got help from the Filipino in community in Philadelphia. So she went to her ethnic community and was like, please, like she probably made connection. When she got there, but she's like, please help me get out of this situation. It's not good. So she leaves him in January, 1985. So their marriage lasted from October to January. And he did all of that in a course of three months. So yeah, uh, unfortunately he had gotten her pregnant and she requested child support payments as was her due. I mean, that's, I feel so bad for her on that. So it's September 15th, 1986. She did give birth to a son who she named Jesse John did so. He also, Hendrick also had another child with Gail Lincoe, which they named Gary Jr. But that child was placed into foster care soon after his birth. My question is like, if you were in foster care, say you're Gary Jr. What would you do when you discovered your parentage? Like you just Google your parents and that pops up. That's, I mean, do you think you're better off in foster care? Like, because it couldn't have been an easy ride in the late 70s, you know, even 80s being in foster care. It's not e- easy easy now, even. So he also had a third child with a third woman, Annette J- Davidson, who was illiterate and mentally disabled. We're going, you know, he's... Ugh. Their daughter, Maxine Davidson, was born March 16th, 1978. And again, is immediately placed into foster care. So at least the social workers are looking at this situation and go, nah, this isn't good. Not a great idea. And this is in the late 70s where they're even saying, "Eh, sir, this is bad. It might have been Maxine's birth and being placed in foster care might have been due to the fact that Hendrick was arrested shortly after for kidnapping and raping Anjanette's sister, Alberta, who at that time had been living in an institution for the mentally disabled in Penn Township. Yeah, that happened let's get more into that hendrick signed out his mentally disabled black girlfriend sister out of the mental institution on the for leave, and then kept her prisoner in the apartment they found her in a locked storage room in his basement and returned her to the facility she was taken up they examined her when she got back they found out that she had been raped sodomized and had contracted gonorrhea both vaginally and orally On top of doing all this stuff, he's spreading disease. Don't forget, he's still Bishop Hendrick right now, too. Like, you can't separate the two like he's preaching after he kidnapped his girlfriend's sister out of the mental home. So he's arrested, charged with kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment involuntary deviant sexual intercourse and interfering with the custody of a committed person because, you know, her family probably committed at that institution and it wasn't safe for her to be out of there, maybe, because she would probably harm herself or others. So they go to trial in November 1978. This is, remember, this. he gets married in the 80s, so it's a whole thing. <sighs> Hendrick pleads not guilty, takes the stand in his own defense, claims that he's innocent, and the court goes, um... We're going to request a psychological exam. And in that exam, they found he was, quote, manipulative and psychosexually immature, end quote. So they found him guilty and they sentenced him to, wait for it, three to seven years in jail. He kidnapped, raped, infected a woman who was mentally disabled. And he gets three to seven years. Don't worry. He appeals and gets the original sentence overturned. And they let him spend three almost three years in various mental institutions let's just sit on that oh huh. it's mm. so he gets released april 12th 1983 on the condition that he remains under the supervision of a state sanctioned medical health program seems fair you know you're like I- I- that makes sense he should that's not bad so we have him being released but even before this which might have like well it probably wasn't taken into account at all for it In 1976, he had already been charged with aggravated assault and carrying an unlicensed pistol because he shot the tenant of a house grazing the tenant's face. So you have him kidnapping someone already. In 78, 76, he had shot, grazed someone in the face. It's it's fine. So we're going to get... Go just go through his victims and their experiences and how they ended up in his house. Time gets a little funky. I apologize, but I thought it would be better to focus on each victim. So we start with Josefina Rivera, who was 25, and she was kidnapped November 25th, 1986. So we see this all happening after his divorce. This is normally considered his first victim even though he had already kidnapped his girlfriend's sister and we see a bit of kind of stockholm syndrome or at least her turning to help him he initially captured her and targeted her because she was a sex worker lured her into his home by you know offering wanting her services she was getting ready to leave he comes up from behind chokes her drags her down to his basement shackles her limbs together with chains and then super glues put super glue in the sealed bolts so even if she tried to she couldn't pick anything out because there's super glue sealed in there and as anyone who's ever gotten super glue stuck in something it's very difficult she later would say quote all i could remember was like a film projector of things that were going on in my life it was just like you know flipping back end quote so her life flashes before her eyes. She's terrified. He beat her with a stick until she stopped screaming for help. He then threw her into a pit in his basement, mind you, boarded it up and sealed her in. So she, imagine you're just doing your job and granted it is puts you at more risk, but you shouldn't be chained and thrown into a pit and then sealed in with wooden boards over it. So the only light she gets is from cracks between the boards. She said of that time, quote, anytime that you're cut off from the outside world, whoever's holding you captive, you're going to grow to like him regardless because he's your only contact to the things that are outside. He's your only source of survival, end quote. She really comes over to his side because he made her the boss of the other women and he would pit the women that he had in there against each other. If he, he would do, you know, stereotypically if she did what he said he would bring her hot chocolate and hot dogs and he she could sleep outside of the hole which you know when that's all your world is makes complete sense but if she if you disobeyed him he would put them quote on punishment and quote where you're starved beaten and tortured he would wrap duct tape around their mouths and slowly jam a screwdriver into their ears just to watch what would happen she understood in order to keep her privileges and basically stay alive. I I can't judge this woman cuz she was the first kidnapped. I mean, she is kidnapped in November 1986 and she manages to stay alive for years. She had to, she understood she had to aid in the torture and so he would start to direct her. He had her fill up the pit with water and attach an unstripped extension cord to the other woman's chains and electrocute them while he watched. So he would make her do the torture torturing as he got off by it the second victim is sandra Lindsay, who was 24 and she was kidnapped december 3rd 1986 so you know they're in the pit and she heard women complaining and like a sound of another chain being dragged across the floor because he would leave the radio on, kind of so, you know, blocks out the sound of her upset and it c- keeps her calm. And he lifts up the board and he drags Riviera from the pit. And there she sees another young black woman who is naked except for her blouse, chained to a pipe on the ceiling, just as she had been the first night. And the woman seems completely unaware of what's going on. He introduces them. He's like, this is Sandy to Josefina. And he leaves. And as soon as he leaves, she realizes why she seemed detached by the situation. Sandy was mentally disabled as well. So she had actually been friends. Sandy had been friends of Hendrix for several years. They met at the Lewin Institute, which was a local hospital for the mentally and physically handicapped. Let's just, you know... (laughs) They were friends. She's like, Gary was, had been a good friend to her, like, always looked after her. She taught, like, Sandy described to Josefina how she had often had sex with Gary and his friend Tony when she actually did become pregnant and she assumed it was Hendrick's baby, but had an abortion. Again, I don't know when this is, but this is right around the time of Roe v. Wade, and abortion isn't legal everywhere, so that's scary enough because, so she had an abortion because she didn't was afraid of becoming a mother. But Hendrick was very upset when he found out and told her she was evil and had offered her $1,000 to have his baby. Sandy refused, so Gary took her prisoner and brought her to the house. And that's when it really hit Sandy and she breaks down because she realized she's not going to leave here. Josefina begins to describe herself to Sandy to kind of calm her down, like work it through and saying she had three children that didn't live with her. And had actually been, been a sex worker since she was a teenager. Hendrick comes down and returns with dinner. Which, in this case, was dry crackers and a bottle of water. Lovely. He lets them leave, but returns two hours later to continue work on enlarging the pit. Because now he has two people down there. So he needed more space, obviously. When he stops, he has sex with, well, rapes both women and leaves again he gives them oatmeal the next morning and it was actually when they were having breakfast that someone knocks on the front door and it was actually sandy's sister and her two cousins who had come to look for her because they knew she was friends with hendrick but he pretended he wasn't home so they left how frustrating must that be for her to think it's they were so close. To avoid this happening again, Hendrik actually forces Sandy to write a note to her mother telling her that she had gone away and would call later. He determined to post the letter from New York so her mother would assume that Sandy had run away. So with this, Josefina really, it really hit her that he was planning to keep them indefinitely and Sandy's not getting that aspect of it. I'm just it just breaks your heart to know that Josefina just sits there, Sandy's writing this letter and goes, Oh shit, like no matter what I do, I'm not getting out of this fucking basement. Hendrick's behavior as time drags on becomes increasingly bizarre. He would feed them sporadically, keep them semi naked, so he could rape them whenever he felt like. When he was gone, the women huddled together for war and waited in terror for his return they if they tried calling for help they would get savagely beat and you know it basically if they didn't follow his rules you would be beat or put into the hole those are your only two options at this point another form of punishment he enjoyed was to attach the girls to an overhead beam by one arm and leave them suspended for hours he's one (laughs) sick fuck so as he's getting better at his torture his sandra's mother is still actively searching for her the monday after she left home she was reported missing to the police and her mother mrs Lindsay, actually told the officer she believed her daughter was being held against her will by gary who lived at 3520 north marshall street so her mom was like no i believe this is what happened she managed to give the officer all the information she had which included a phone number but didn't have a last name the officer even i mean This was not lack of police work. The police officer called the number, went to the house, got no response. I don't know if he followed up. When she showed the officer the letter she received from New York, including a Christmas card, which contained $5, the police, this is where the police kind of turn against, and they're like, she's just another runaway. The officer did... Try looking for hendrick's friend Tony Brown. He found him actually at a McDonald's in West Philadelphia that Sandy was as well known to frequent. He and again totally hit. Tony has mental disabilities, and so he asked him if he knew where Sandra was, and he the man told him no. He tried to ask his last name, and. Tony actually spelled misspelled it which he spelled it as H E I D A K E which is Hendrik which he had the first bit right because it's actually spelled H E I D N I K you know it actually lent to the officer looking for the wrong man, dropping it during this time. Lisa Thomas, who is 19, is kidnapped December 23rd, 1986. So he's kidnapping women pretty frequently. So we have Josefina is kidnapped November 25th. Sandra, or Sandy, is December 3rd. And then at the end of the month, again, we have... Lisa he went out shopping a couple days before Christmas like most people did and he was like you know what i need another girl in my my torture basement he found black 19 year old lisa thomas on her way to her girlfriend's house he pulls up beside her in the cadillac and he basically tries to pick her up like she's a sex worker she gets mad and basically tells him off cuz she's not a sex worker he apologizes offers her a ride and you know she's like oh so nice because he had an impressive car. So Hendrik asks her where she's going, and she's like, I'm just going around the corner to pick up something from a girlfriend. You no, know, as you do. So he drove her there, waited while she went inside. When she returned, he's like, You know, let's go somewhere and eat. And she's like, Okay. Again, she's 19, not judging her, but damn. So they go to a local restaurant, and he asks her, Mind you, they just met. He's like, you want to go to Atlantic City with me within the next day? And, she, and Lisa goes, I have nothing suitable to wear to Atlantic City. So he gives her $50. I'm like, clutch move, you know, $50. And they're like, we'll go to Sears. We'll get you some clothes for Atlantic City. They buy the clothes, takes her back to Marshall Street, gives her a glass of wine, put on a, a video movie. It's a Netflix and chill situation netflix and chill with someone who abducts people she doesn't know that but still lisa's watching the movie she had been taking allergy medicine and that with the wine remember again she's 19 19 lays down and falls asleep she wakes up he's on un- he has already undressed her and by the time she kind of has her head clear from all that he she was taken up to his bedroom and raped he like she's like okay he's clearly okay She's like, he's done. I'm going to get dressed. And, you know, she goes, can I go back to my girlfriend's house? He grabs her by the throat again same move he used with josefina and begins choking her until she complies with his command he then handcuffs her takes her down to the basement and he goes i want to introduce you to my two friends who you ask are the two friends lisa and josefina who are already trapped in this basement he gets down the basement removes the plywood sheet from the floor and lifts josefina and sandy out of the pit he makes introductions then proceeds to make them sandwiches and they could not telling them they could not eat until he had indoctrinated Lisa by forcing her to give him a blow job before chaining her up like the other women, you know, chains, super glue in there. And, He leaves. The women just kind of, you know, eat the sandwiches and like, welcome to hell. We're probably not getting out of here. Pretty much they had two things in common. They were all black and they were all being held by Hendrick against their will. And Hendrick is a white man. I don't know if I said that before, but he is a white man holding three black women. We have our fourth victim, Deborah Dudley. She's 23 and she was kidnapped January 2nd, 1987. So again, we see a beginning of the month kidnapping just like Lindsay, sandy Lindsay. he returns 10 days later from the trips he would take with another black woman deborah who was not about to let herself go into the situation without a fight so she's like no basically from the time he had chained her up she began to question his authority at every opportunity and earned herself a savage beating this would create tension because if she fought back, he would beat all of them, and so you know that can create tension. They weren't getting beat as much because they were all being compliant. And she's gonna—I f- mean, Deborah's gonna fight for her life. She's not taking shit. And unfortunately, that does doesn't gel well with the others. Beatings become more regular. Hendrick actually appoints one of the girls to be in charge when he's out, and he basically expects them to rat on <laughs> the rest of them. He wants them to tattle on their behavior and he would expect the girl in charge to beat the others accordingly and if there were no infractions or if the beatings weren't severe enough he would just beat them all because he's a garbage person this is also when josefina begins to win him over because he believes that she enjoyed being one of his quote-unquote wives because he views this as his personal harem again garbage person he hmm so with the arrival of deborah he changed his sexual appetites he would still have sex with them all daily but he often would force them to have sex with each other while he watched and he wasn't a big fan on personal hygiene but he eventually did provide them with a portable toilet and baby wipes to wash their bodies which okay josefina's been in there since the end of november it's now into january Mm, poor woman Past. He also eventually would allow them to have a bath after, which he then forced them to have sex. So, additionally, around this time, the the mountain types of food changed according to his mood. Sometimes he would only give them bread and water. Following day, they might get stale hot dogs or a peanut butter sandwich and he eventually just gave them canned dog food and beat them until they ate it all it's yeah so we have another addition jacqueline atkins who was 18 and she was kidnapped january 18th 1987 so we have a mid-month one still following his pattern of Around two a month, he went out and we returned on January 18th with another black girl. She was a sex worker from the north side of the city, and he brought her back to the house. He did the same thing he did with Josefina. He had sex with her and then dragged her to the basement. And because she was so tiny, he couldn't actually use the shackles on her ankles and had to use handcuffs instead. Interestingly, later that day, he bought everyone Chinese food and a bottle of champagne. Brought out a bottle of champagne. Which was really to celebrate the 26th birthday of his favorite, Josefina. And she would actually reveal later he was in such good spirits because he thought that Rivera and Lindsay had fallen pregnant at that time. Which was not true. I feel like your body kind of just would shut down after that. but So he celebrates pregnancy and a birthday with Chinese food and a bottle of champagne, which if you think the women are pregnant, you should not give them alcohol. So weird way for Jacqueline to come in. And there's kind of a turn in this situation because it's going to go from them just being captive into more extreme torture. So Lindsay or Sandy could not take the abuse as well as the others. You know, she came into the situation so differently. She thought that Hendrick with her friend and he so he decides to punish her by starving her for days. When he tries to give her food again, she wouldn't move. He actually released her chains and she collapsed on the ground and they realize she was dead. They start panicking and Hendrick told them to quote, cut out their bullshit and quote, or they would die next. So he she either because of the poor nutrition and all of that starved to death or mentally just couldn't deal with it anymore. So he dragged her body upstairs so this is Sandy's, cut it into pieces, cooked her ribs in the oven, boiled her head on the stove. The neighbors actually complained of the smell, and the police visited, and he's like, I just, uh, burned a roast. Silly me. Police believed it. Again, white man. And then put her arms and legs in a freezer. (sighs) Sorry, I just hate this part. It's really difficult. He proceeded to grind her flesh up, mix it with the dog food, and brought it down to the other women. So because three of the women were still on punishment mainly cuz a few days before he let them watch tv and he was pissed off because one of them said she was so hungry that the dog food in an ad looked good enough to eat so hendrick determined that she would get dog food as well as the two other women there is a question if he actually put Lindsay into it some say yes some say he made it up to support an insanity defense the women really don't know because only hendrix knows because he knows what happened to the body they either had to eat it or die jacqueline would say later quote if it wasn't for me eating her or eating dog food i wouldn't be here today end quote that's one of the key things we can't it's like the donna party and those situations you we should never really shame people for what they had to do to survive because they got out of that situation and there's so much internalized guilt with it that societal guilt doesn't really need to be added to it they knew that woman whether or not they were forced to eat her, he made them believe that and that's super fucked up so we then have agnes adams 24 and she was kidnapped march 23rd 1987 so we have a break because jacqueline was kidnapped middle of january february he didn't kidnap anyone okay a few days after this Deborah had recovered her composure continues to defy hendrick and you know gary found a new method to torture them he developed a version of electroshock treatment his idea was simple you know, strip the insulation from one end of an electrical extension cord, plug the other into a socket. He would then turn on the power and hold bare wires against the girls chain and watch them with enjoyment be electrocuted josefina again is exempt from punishment as weeks pass he gets her to have help more and more and spent more time alone with her so on march 18th when hendrick decides to punish the others he has josefina help him he added a new aspect to the electroshock therapy water as you know you should not put water, electricity together. It just doesn't go well. So he drilled holes in the plywood cover. He ordered Riviera to fill the pit with water. So Lisa, Deborah, and Jacqueline are still in chains, pushed down into the pit. Cover was replaced and weighted down with bags of dirt. There's water in this pit. They're chained and like freezing down there. And all of a sudden, the bare wire was pushed through one of the holes, touched one of the chains, electrocuting all of them. The second time The wire gets put in. It makes direct contact with Debra's chain. She screams, shudders uncontrollably, and falls face down into the water. The two other girls, women, begin screaming until Hendrick removes the cover and drags her out. He determines that she's dead. He then proceeds to calmly make fucking sandwiches and tells them, quote, aren't you glad it wasn't one of you, end quote. He leaves them for a few minutes later, and he then proceeds to come back and hands a piece of paper and a pen to Josefina and tells her to write the date and time on top of the page and write the statement detailing how she had assisted him to execute Deborah Dudley. So he is making her complicit 110%. He orders her to sign it, follows with the signature and tells her, quote, if you ever go to the cops, I can use this as evidence you killed Debbie, end quote. I think it would be under duress you know he knows he has her completely under control or at least he thinks he does he removes her chain josephina's change told her go upstairs and change and this is the would be the first time she had been completely dressed in four months so she's been in there for four months and what hellish four months it was he returns the following day to the basement wraps dudley's body in plastic places it in a freezer and leaves so agnes adams she's 24 and she would be kidnapped on march 23rd 1987 so a couple days after deborah passes this trip has josefina and Hendrik driving outside in the countryside in new jersey he stops his car near a heavily wooded area and he's like good spot to put deborah's body the following night on march 22nd they load her partially frozen remains in a dodge van drives to the area that is known as the Pine Barrens. She waits in the vehicle while Hendrick drops the bodies in a grove of trees. And the next day, he tells Josefina that he needs to go find a quote-unquote replacement for Dudley. And he's like, let's go out together and find one. How terrified do you think she has to be to know that she would put another woman in this situation? I would feel horrible. They go out cruising for a likely subject and they find another black sex worker on the street corner Josefina actually knows her as Agnes Adams because they worked at the same strip club Hendrick also knew Agnes he was a previous customer of her and had actually taken her back home two other times the first time there was a car blocking his driveway and he had been unable to find alternate parking so he drove her back in the cities paid her 10 bucks for her troubles second time they had sex he paid her after that she walked home he had never tried to attack her on either occasion but you know he negotiated a price they they come back to his house Josefina actually remained in the kitchen when he took Agnes upstairs they had sex like the others she found herself stripped chained and imprisoned in the basement however Josefina is appearing complicit in all of this willing but she has been biding her time to deal with this remember she's watched two of the women who have been there die one via starvation and one who she was kind of forced to electrocute to her death to say she has trauma is saying it lightly on march 24th she had been working with Hendrik, pleading like oh you know let me go see if i can bring you back a new wife and he actually agrees on the condition after visiting her family she would pick up a woman meet him at a gas station near her house at midnight so he drops her off that evening, near her house, and drove off. Within seconds, she is running towards her apartment that she shared with her boyfriend, a black man, Vincent Nelson. He answers the door. She tells him the story, and Nelson is like, "What the fuck?" And he's like, "Did she lose her mind?" She like he's trying to calm her down, and she is just get it, like. Getting it all out because I think she's afraid if she doesn't tell someone right away and he come Hendrik comes back to her she's not coming back alive so she convinced him to call the police she- Nelson made a call to 911 from a nearby phone two officers john cannon and david savage pull up she tell bravely tells her story again this woman has been traumatized and has to like convince them they all find it really hard to believe until she shows the bottom of her jeans and shows the scars because remember she was in prison for four months with shackles on her ankles that leads Damage. They go to the gas station. The co- Like, I'll go to the gas station where Hendrick's waiting for it in his Cadillac. The cops approach the car, weapons out. Hendrick raises his hand. And he's like, oh, is this about child support payments? What, bitch? Also, you haven't been paying that, sir. He was told, <laughs> interestingly, it's for a far serious matter and he's under arrest. And so after he, all of this happens in four or four, five fucking months. Like, what? <sighs> so around... 5 a.m. on March 25th, 1987, a squad of police cars go to 3520 North Marshall Street under the direction of Homicide Lieutenant James Hansen, and they arrive. They couldn't figure out his lock system, so they just break down the door. David Savage was one of the men who had arrested him, also is one of the first officers through the door. He follows, because remember, he's probably one of the few men who heard the entire story. So... Him and his partner, McCloskey, go straight to the basement. He saw two black women asleep on a mattress in the middle of the room. And it's March in Philly. It's cold. They only have a thin, dirty blanket. They woke up and began to scream because they're so terrified of another person being in that basement. It took him a while for Savage to assure them that he was a police officer and they come to release them. And that's when he noticed that they were chained to a pipe in the ceiling and wore nothing except for thin blouses and socks, identified themselves as Jacqueline Atkins and Lisa Thomas. And when asked if there were any more women in the house, they pointed to the plywood on the floor and the plastic bags filled with soil on top of it to keep it on there. They pushed aside the bags and found the nude figure of Agnes Adams, who was squatting at the bottom of the pit. They lifted her out. The police removed the chains and took them upstairs to a waiting ambulance. And then they proceed to basically do the full CSI sweep as much as they could in the 80s. They found an aluminum pot on the stove, which was badly scorched and contained a yellow fattish substance. The kitchen counter had an industrial food processor. Inside the stove, there was an oven dish containing charred pieces of bone that resembled a human rib. And pretty much as soon as they open the fridge, any question of what really happened here goes away. They found a human forearm in the freezer. They searched the entire house for several days and the yard detailing, like taking extensive evidence. They excavated the front and backyards and they found no full human remains. They did find in a closet. Really, it was just a closet full of porn which mainly featured black women. And they were like, okay, you know, it's a disturbed person on a veteran's pension. And that's when they actually discovered he had $550,000 in a Merrill Lynch stock market investing account. So the house looked shitty. (laughs) Well, it didn't look like the best. And then they find out he's rich. They begin questioning him and trying to figure out what happened in this whole thing now to the court case april 23rd 1987 he appears in court for the first time his counsel is charles chuck peruto hendrick picked him because he was an experienced sharp-minded defense attorney and he had a reputation for defending sensational cases so this first hearing is to just see if there's probable cause for the crimes. We have Assistant District DA Charles Gallagher, who pretty much lays it out. He's charged with murder, kidnapping, rape, aggravated assaults, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, indecent exposure, False imprisonment, unlawful restraint, simple assault, indecent assault, and other associated offenses. So that's about seven that they list. And really, the strongest evidence comes from his victims themselves. First was Lisa Thomas, who described in detail then josefina riviera came up and she really came in clear confident telling her story from the time she was picked up in the cadillac till she was released she really went and described graphically the deaths of sandra Lindsay and deborah dudley and she even admitted she had been the one to push the cord into the pit when peruto cross-examined her later and accused her of instigating like the beatings and electrocution when he cross-examined Lisa Thomas she Lisa did ac- accuse Hendrick of like Riviera of being Hendrick's willing partner but her evidence was refuted when Jacqueline Atkins took the stand and put in front of the court that Josefina only did Hendrick's bidding when she was under threat of death or punishment so it's a little bit of he said she said but it's still like psychologically I think now we can see where Rivera was coming from she knew she had to figure a way to get out. Especially after she watched Sandy died, because think about it, they were put in there so close together and they witnessed his depravity going from simple beatings into these crazy tortures. So the proceedings ended with Dr. Paul Hoyer. The medical Emmy, the county Emmy, giving evidence on the body parts and the other human remains found in Hendrick's kitchen. He (laughs) read out what was found in the kitchen. Two forearms, one upper arm, two knees, two segments of thighs, all cut with the saw. The tissue, muscle, and skin still attached. 24 pounds of human remains were found carefully wrapped and stored in his refrigerator. He was indicted and held for trial. So that's just (laughs) pre-trial what happened. The main trial begins June 20th. 1988 everybody's there you know you just want to get in on the action this is before court tv guys so charles gallagher comes out strong gory detail he's like this man did it chuck peruto knew what his defense was gonna be and he was gonna prove try and prove that gary hendrick is certifiably insane so this is a situation where the prosecution's case is like a pokemon it leveled up it evolved it got stronger it got more powerful and within both opening statements taken very quickly charles gallagher begins calling witnesses to the stand two days the jury of six white six black jurors heard testimonies from the captives themselves their families the police and the medical examiners so after the judge excused the last of the prosecution witnesses chuck peruto actually requested that the charge of first-degree murder be removed on the grounds of intent-, intent to kill had not been proven. And he got a nice overruled by the judge Lynn Abram. Pruto built his defense around two men, Hendrick's psychiatrist, Dr. Clancy McKenzie, and psychologist, Jack Absche. Unfortunately, uh, when he called McKenzie to the stand, he found out that McKenzie came in with his own agenda, the man who had spent around 100 total hours with Hendrix, refused to answer any direct questions, instead launching into intellectual discussions on schizophrenia and other associated medical conditions, which confused the jury as it would anybody. He asked you a direct question, and he just starts going ivory tower on him. Pruto manages to direct Mackenzie to give his opinion on, like, the insanity defense, defense, and the question was, at the time of the offenses, did Gary Hendrick know the difference between right and wrong? And, quote, quote no, he did not. Quote. So he did get him to say that he did not know that right and wrong at the time. And then he turns to the judge. He asked that instruct the jury to consider the possibility that Josefina Rivera was actually an accomplice. And Abrams snaps back, saying she would be okay with that as long as he understood. So Peruto understood. It would indicate to the jury that if Hendrick could enlist an aid of an accomplice, he's clearly not insane because he clearly knows what he's doing. Pruto's <laughs> like, Heard? Not gonna do that. The following day, uh Abram Judge Abrams refused to admit most of Jack Acey's testimony on Hendrick's mental health, ruling it inadmissible because <laughs> Which really puts his case back, Purjo's case back, because his insanity defense is built on these two men. But Mackenzie undermined his credibility. Apache was not allowed to talk about all his research into Hendrix's mental health history. And he's like, This is the proof that he's been insane for most of his adult life. He decides to play his final card. He calls Dr. Kenneth Cool, another psychiatrist. Cool was actually able to give his part of his professional opinion regarding the sanity. But in a closed session, Judge Abrams ruled that his testimony testimony was, quote, confusing the jury, end quote, and ruled most of it actually be stricken. He, Cole's testimony was also damaged in cross-examination when he said he had only spent 20 minutes with Hendrick and had left out of frustration because Hendrick refused to talk to him. (laughs) And you have to imagine his attorney is just sitting there like, why did I do this? But Gallagher asked... What he had based this analysis that he cool had presented to the court, and he cool straight up admitted he had relied on Hendricks' previous medical history. This really, like, if you think of the defense as tearing down the wall that the prosecution builds up, unfortunately, it really seems like Bruto thought he was coming in with a sledgehammer, and he actually came in with like a plastic blunt mallet and he just keeps trying to hit at it and nothing's moving. This is really shown when Gallagher calls in an extra witness, Robert Kirkpatrick, Hendrick's broker at Merrill Lynch. So, remember, Hendrick has half a million dollars in this investment. Kirkpatrick's evidence claimed that Gary Hendrick that he knew was quote an astute investor who knew exactly what he was doing End quote. So, it's just any like they just put like extra supports on that wall and the defense isn't going to get through. They spend the next few days calling additional witnesses to prove, disprove each other's argument until there's nobody left and they can begin their final summations. The judge instructs the jury on the technicalities of the various degrees of murder, other legalities to help them reach the verdict. So on June 30th, remember we began this case on June 20th. So it took 10 days, which is way shorter than a California trial. The, Jury spent sixteen hour deli- hours of deliberation over two and a half days. They're ready. They come out. Betty Ann Bennett, the four-person, reads the verdict. We have for the murder of Deborah Dudley, murder in the first degree. Sandra Lindsay, murder in the first degree. He stood convicted on eighteen charges: two counts of first-degree murder, five counts of rape, six counts of kidnapping, four counts of aggravated assault one count of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. So after that, Judge Abrams retires the jury until 9 a.m. following day where prosecution and defense would have chance to address the jury before the sentence was decided. However, by 1215, the next day, unanimously, the jury decided that Gary Hendricks should be sentenced to death for the two murders. Hendricks has showed no emotion at all during the trial Even when the sentence is read, he attempts suicide january nineteen eighty nine with an overdose of prescribed thorazine in nineteen eighty seven. His daughter Maxine Davison White and ex wife Betty Hendrick filed in suit in federal court in the eastern district of pennsylvania trying to seek a stay of execution because he they were like he's not competent to be executed and after years in court july 3rd 1999 the u.s district court issued its final ruling basically saying nope he can be executed he was executed by lethal injection july 6 1999 and he was actually the last person executed by pennsylvania so weird fact uh yeah this story is hella dark hella depressing um i hope the women who survived are doing okay next week i'll be back with another solo story unless i can con someone to recording with me last minute but i hope you all are having a wonderful october and i'll see you next week bye The investigation into the high school
1: massacre Parkland is... one High School Massacre. At
0: least 14 dead,
1: 50 injured. 13 people were killed today in a mass shooting, and that includes a suspected gunman.
0: Coming soon, Active Shooter, a podcast that studies the psychology, motives,
1: and methods behind some of the most notorious active shooters in North America
0: and beyond. East Alameda Avenue, they're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. 315 and 315 we will discuss the whys, the hows, and most importantly, the proposed solutions. Can the proper mix of mental health services and gun access put a stop to what has now become an accepted everyday occurrence? Have we become desensitized in accepting of this new phenomenon? Join us as we break down each case and discuss the failures that led to each event and how we can identify and stop them in the future. Join us soon, and please subscribe to Active
1: Shooter. Hello, everyone. Let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? well think again it's a fresh take on true crime where you wouldn't expect to find true crime in schools yes schools you will hear tragic and shocking stories that I have uncovered in my own profession you'll hear about murder abduction hijack misconduct student disappearance suicide Kidnap and Ransom, and much, much more. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, an Apple for the Teacher is for you. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. So join me as I present People Behaving Badly, The Bad Apples. Looking forward to seeing you soon, but until then, remember to be a good Apple.
0: Cult of Domesticity. We're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word, or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts, and our Instagram is at the Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.